0: This is chapter one of the War on Waste Paradox, part three. If you recall the last chapter, or last part, our hero and Charlie sort of bumped into each other a little bit when Charlie started to drink as a way to indicate that he didn't have a chance of finding a job, and so our hero was trying to perk him up, and that's where we pick it up. The next morning when I picked Charlie up, he actually looked pretty good as he lumbered across the lawn. He jumped into the truck and said, thanks for your support yesterday. I needed that. I tossed the pint. I was feeling pretty good when we pulled into the parking lot at Quality Pump. We went into the personnel department and filled out our employment applications for the umpteenth time. They all looked the same, asked the same questions, and required signatures in the same location. What a waste. I submitted the form to the woman at the front desk. After a while, the receptionist called Charlie, and he went in for an interview. In a few minutes, he came out with a little smile on his face and whispered to me, The guy said they're getting ready to put some people on. I was called in a few minutes later. The guy on the other side of the desk looked at my application and then said he might be able to use someone like me. He thanked me for coming and said that he would let me know. All the way home, Charlie remained pretty excited. This was the best prospect we'd had in a long time. I went right home after I dropped Charlie off. As I pulled in the driveway, Buddy was there with his glove and bat. I got out of the truck and kissed Buddy and went into the house to see Sandy. She was walking over to pick up the phone. She answered it as I picked up Mickey and Kathy. Kathy is a four-year-old beauty. She looks just like her mother. She could never get up to see me off in the morning. She deferred that responsibility to Buddy. At night, she insisted that I was her exclusive property. I tried to pay attention to Kathy, but Sandy signaled that the phone was for me. It was the personnel manager where we'd interviewed during the day asking me if I could start in the morning. Of course, I told him yes. I then asked about Charlie. The personnel manager said he was sorry, but they couldn't use him. About 9 o'clock that night, Charlie called and spoke with Sandy. She told him that I was going to work. He didn't say anything and just hung up the phone. I snapped back to my present situation, driving to my new job, and I turned up the volume to my favorite country station, K-P-A-Y. You provide the city, we provide the country. A little bit of country in the city. And at that moment, Johnny Paycheck began singing, Take this job and shove it. I ain't working here no more. I started laughing when a song, when I sang along because I really didn't know whether or not I wanted to shove my job. I hadn't even started to work. When I got there, I parked my truck and went into the office. I filled, all, filled out all the required paperwork, A couple of the other guys filling out paperwork had worked with me at Osgood's. We waited just a short time until this huge guy walked into the office. The personnel director pointed us out as the new hires, and he led us to the shop floor. As we walked out, he pulled a stub of a cigar from a pocket of his overalls, lit it, and introduced himself as Jack, the plant superintendent. Jack must have been six foot five or six, and he weighed at least 350 pounds. Everyone seemed to like him, and he laughed and joked with people as he walked around. He showed us around the plant. He took us to the tool crib and left me there with Billy, one of the foremen. Billy led me over to a small computer-controlled milling machine and asked, you ever run one of these before? I told him I had, and he pulled a drawing from his clipboard pointed to a pallet with some rough stock on it, and said, here's the stock, and this is what we need to make. You'll find all the tools you need in the tool crib. Let's go to work. My first job was pretty simple. I was able to set it up and start running it in about three hours. Billy came by just as I was finishing up, and he seemed pleased. He put me with another guy doing setup for another job and left. As I punched out that afternoon, Jack came up and said, good day, young man. You're going to work out just fine. After I stopped by to see Phyllis and told her about the new job, she listened for a while, but every time she looked at me, she cried. I reminded her of Charlie, and she couldn't contain herself. I stayed a while longer and then got up to leave. She gave me a big hug. Another friend arrived to comfort Phyllis as I headed home. The next morning, I completed the job I had started the previous afternoon. The guy I was working with was the lead man from the tool and dye shop. His name was Gus, and he had been at the plant for a long time. He was a good enough hand, but he seemed a little bit too cocky. He was not as good as Charlie. He bragged that he and his crew were the only ones in the plant who knew what was going on besides Jack. He said, that Jack's a clever bastard. I like working at this new plant. The group of guys was good, and I couldn't help noticing that this plant looked awful lot like Osgoods before it closed down. There were pallets of whip work and process everywhere. Products seemed to get out on time, but there was always a lot of rescheduling going on. Everyone was putting in a lot of overtime and no one seemed to mind because they were making pretty good money. I quickly got the feeling that the same things were happening here that had happened at Osgoods. Just as I'd get a job set up, I'd be told to tear it down and start another one. Jack was in charge. There was no denying that. He ran the department like it was his own personal kingdom. Jack seemed to like my work, so he never gave me any trouble. But whenever he got the chance, he would terrorize the foreman just to let them know who was the boss. On my third day, Gus and I were doing a setup for another rush job. Jack was overseeing the work, sending people screwing around to get us whatever we needed so we could get the job running. At that moment, the general manager and the head of sales walked over to him. The general manager started to get on Jack's case about the order being light, and Jack blew up. He started yelling. They didn't know his problems, that he couldn't get reliable suppliers, that the old machines couldn't be expected to keep up with all the orders. Jack only knew one way to manage. He yelled, but he never listened. While he was yelling, Jack was waving his arm. He began backing these two guys toward the offices. Finally, the two executives were at the door of the office, and when the sales vice president opened it, they beat a hasty retreat. Gus began laughing like, hell while this was going on. That damn Jack, you know, he doesn't take crap from anybody. He's got that general manager scared of his own shadow. Even though Gus seemed to think it was the funniest thing he'd ever seen, I started getting a little nervous. I'd just gone through one plant closure and was not looking forward to another. In a weird way, I thought Charlie got off easy. He was out of this rat race, and here I was, back in the middle of another crazy deal. Jack and Charlie had gone to the same school together, so Jack had no problem letting me off to go to the funeral. I went into work early to help get the job that I was working on completed. On the way to the funeral, I stopped to pick up Sandy, and we met my mom and dad at the church. There were a lot of people from Osgoods there. Even old man Osgood showed up. He looked like he had aged 20 years since I'd seen him. After the burial, a few of us from the old plant went down to see where the accident had happened. You could see the plant from where we were, and one of the guys noticed that the for sale sign was gone. Surely... One of the gals who had worked in my department called her brother who owned the local real estate office. She came back with tears in her eyes and said, they're going to tear down the plant and put up a shopping mall. They're going to put a damn McDonald's right there on the corner. I thought, great, some kid's going to be flipping burgers where I used to turn metal. That's America for you. Tear down a factory, put up another fast food joint. The next morning when Gus and I arrived, The plant was completely clean. All the pallets of whip were gone. When I asked Gus about it, he said, I told you Jack was clever. We're doing physical inventory. The auditors start tomorrow. Jack put most of the whip and stashed it in that old warehouse out back. He's been doing that for years. You see, we have to pay a higher tax on whip on that stock. So Jack hides it up there and calls it raw material. The guys over in accounting don't have a clue what's going on. They just know... We look real good at tax time, and that makes Jack look like a hero. Soon afterward, it really hit the fan. The auditors had looked in the warehouse and found the whip. The plant was closed down for a couple of days while the big guns from the company's accounting firm sent an army of auditors into the plant. When we came back to work, Jack was gone. We sort of stumbled around for a couple of weeks with the general manager and the foreman trying to run things. Then we got a new plant manager. He met with us and said his name was Jim. He told us that the last plant where he had worked had just closed down. He said that he was glad to have a job and hoped to make some changes in the plant so that we'd become more efficient. The last thing he said was that everybody was going to keep his or her job and nobody would be laid off. That made me feel better because I'd been one of the last hires, so I'd probably be one of the first to go. Jim came over to my station after the meeting and said he was sorry about Charlie. He had known him, and he had also known that he was a good hand. Jim meant what he said about changes. The first thing he did was move his desk onto the shop floor. He had some carpenters take in and knock out all the walls between his old office and several other offices that were only being used for storage. The room was now big enough to easily hold 20 to 30 people. He brought in some chairs and tables, and a VCR and a TV. He also got an overhead projector and put up several blackboards. He was making changes all right, but I couldn't see how watching TV was going to make us more efficient. One afternoon, about a week after the carpenters finished, Jim came walking through the shop with an interesting looking guy. He and Jim were watching things and stopping here and there to talk to some of the workers. They came over to my station and Jim said, This is Dr. Elby. He's going to help us make some of the changes that I talked about. L.B. had a good firm handshake and said he'd look forward to working with us. He didn't look like he'd help much with machine work. He was in his mid-forties and was dressed in slacks and a sport coat. He wore metal-rimmed glasses and a wild pink pullover shirt. He wasn't really tall, but he looked strong. Not like a bodybuilder or like a swimmer or something, someone who did gymnastics. He had large shoulders for his size. None of that mattered, though. I figured I'd wait and see who this Dr. L.B. was and what he could do. At the end of every chapter in this book, I provide insights. These are the insights from the end of chapter one. No one owns the market on good ideas. One of the observations in this chapter is that many companies are organized on the principle of engineers do the engineering and machinists do the machining. In other words, There are companies that think that only their super-educated employees are smart enough to propose ideas and implement them. Consider that a mediocre idea fully embraced by those who must implement it almost always gets better results than a stellar idea pushed down from on high. It is our opinion that these companies will fall short. The smart and profitable companies, however, say any idea that helps the profit is a good idea. So how do you create a company that listens to ideas? How do you get people to tap tribal knowledge and work with everyone to make a profitable company? In this chapter, we also hear about our hero's father and his friends working outside their jobs on other work. It was a little side business. Why are they doing that? I see that in just about every company where I work. Employees work on cars. Carpentry and other outside craft activities after work to expand or utilize their knowledge or skill set. It is this aspect of tribal knowledge that we will explore in this book, the underutilized and untapped company resource. People have a need to use that knowledge that they possess. It is almost a mandate of the human condition that people be allowed to use the knowledge, all the knowledge, their tribal knowledge. If the use of knowledge is constrained, then you end up with unhappy employees. Tribal knowledge is what it is, not what is written down in some procedure book. It is the collective wisdom and skills and capabilities of the company used or unused, accurate or inaccurate. It is the sum total of the information that gets products out the door. In most cases, it is not what management believes exists, it is something else. It is what is. The goal in the war on waste is to match the public rhetoric with reality. And when they match, you end up with a very effective company. And that is what this book will teach you and what it is about. Thank you very much. We'll see you in Chapter 2. Before we go too far here in this book, those of you that are not in manufacturing jobs and listening to this audio or are going to read the book, realize that the transfer of the stories in this book to your job, let's say in a hospital or in, in a dress shop or in a any kind of a business, is just the same. You have set up in garment factory, you know, between when you pull a piece of material off the shelf to put it down to start cutting on it, there's a setup process to do that. And if you can think using the little tools that we talk about all through this book, you can start to see how you can transfer the knowledge that you've got in this book to your particular business. So as we go through it, I'll throw in little comments at the end of each chapter reading that might help you see some other analogies that would apply to your business. Thanks very much. We'll see you in Chapter 2.